It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Saturday, December 2nd, 2023. I'm Jared Halpern. The House votes to expel one of their own in an extraordinary end to the congressional career of George Santos. Some members were like, you know, he has been so fraudulent and so arrogant in this and the charges are so damning that we're ready to to boot him out. And a trailblazer on the Supreme Court dies at 93 years old. First of all, she showed every one of us, male and female, that it was possible to be a whole person and to be a lawyer. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. To hell with this place. Those were some of the farewell comments from former Congressman George Santos minutes after the House voted to expel the New York Republican. On this vote, the yeas are 311. The nays are 114, with two recorded as present. Two-thirds voting in the affirmative. The resolution is adopted. House Speaker Mike Johnson presided over the history-making vote that diminishes his already slim majority. In light of the expulsion of the gentleman from New York, Mr. Santos, the whole number of the House is now 434. Santos is just the sixth member of Congress ever expelled, just the third since the Civil War, and the first to face the most severe congressional punishment without first being convicted. But the ouster vote followed a damning report from the House Ethics Committee that revealed a slew of campaign finance violations and using contributions for personal funds like cosmetic enhancements and OnlyFans subscriptions. A 23-count federal indictment charges Santos with money laundering, wire fraud, theft of public funds, and making false statements. He has pleaded not guilty to those allegations. And through the Ethics Committee probe, remained defiant. It is a predetermined necessity for some members in this body to engage in this smear campaign to destroy me. In the end, the vote to expel was still in doubt, even as the House Friday morning gaveled into session. Fox News senior congressional correspondent Chet Pergram followed it minute by minute and shares his reporting on how precedent-setting the expulsion may be. Well, it seems certainly more plausible after the Ethics Committee released its report. Uh, You heard a lot of members, and there were two efforts to expel George Santos before These were motions that were blocked. They were tabled uh, because they said he hadn't been convicted. Uh, You look at the bar uh, for expelling members of Congress in the House of Representatives. Uh, You had to be a member of the Confederacy or uh, been a convicted felon who wouldn't resign. You had that with Ozzie Myers in 1980 from Pennsylvania and Jim Traficant from Ohio in uh, 2002. And so people were leery to go down this path. But some members were like, you know, he has been so fraudulent and so arrogant in this, and the charges are so damning that we're ready to to boot him out. And so that seemed to pivot things. Now, uh, there was some question as to whether or not they would have the votes just because, A, we do this so rarely here in Congress. Mm -hmm. Uh, Number two, the bar is very high, two-thirds, so you needed, if all 435 members voted, you needed 290. Uh, So it was very unclear if they were going to have the votes to actually expel him. 
and ultimately they did. But uh, I'll tell you, it was, uh, it, it was kind of touch and go, especially when you had the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, indicating mm -hmm. that he was opposed to this because of the precedent and the, the questions of due process. Same with Steve Scalise, the majority leader. Mm -hmm. So uh, in some respects, it was very expected because you saw this, this trend line going that way. But when you have the Speaker and the majority leader say they're not for it, and a lot of members were saying they're not for it either because of process or saying this was going to dwindle their uh, pretty narrow majority mm -hmm. already, uh, it was very hard to read, frankly, Jared. Well, so you brought up a lot of things I wanted to touch on. Let's start with this idea that uh, it violates due process because uh, Santos is accused in this federal indictment but is not convicted. This sets a new precedent. At the same time, Chad, the Constitution basically gives Congress, the House and the Senate, the ability to figure out who's a member and who's not, right? I mean, there's yeah. not, a, there's, there, there's not a, a constitutional requirement that someone ought to be convicted of a crime um, to be removed. I mean, yeah. Congress is still a workplace. There, there are a lot of workplaces who would have removed an employee like George Santos. That's right. And because the Constitution is so crystal clear and it's not conditional, Article 1, Section 5, Clause 2 says with the compliance of, of two-thirds of the body, you can expel a member. It also says the House and Senate can write their own rules. It can also be the judge of elections determine, determining who gets to sit in those bodies, although it's, it's a little harder there because of a Supreme Court case with Adam Clayton Powell, the late Democratic representative from Harlem, who was Charlie Rangel's predecessor, uh, who was seated because they didn't want to undo an election. But once you get here, mm. it's actually a little easier to get you out because of that. And so <laughs> and, and so that was that was not really tested today. Uh, one wonders if if George Santos potentially, uh, you know, could could go and challenge this in court. I mean, that's what Adam Clayton Powell did, essentially, because they were they, they did they did not seat him. And then finally, he went to court and won against uh, it was Powell versus McCormick. Uh, speaker McCormick was the speaker at the time. And they said, yeah, you got to seat him. And so they did. So there's never been any jurisprudence on that about once you kick somebody out. So um, that's a little bit different in this in this mm -hmm. case. But again, that's that slippery slope that some people were very worried about, including the speaker. You mentioned the numbers, uh, the, the dwindling majority for House Republicans. Uh, George Santos represents a very swingy district in um, New York. In fact, the, the latest sort of numbers out of there would indicate it, it probably leans a little bit more in favor of the Democrats. They will have a special election. We will see how that shakes out. But, Chad, there is another member from Ohio who has announced he's leaving early to be the university uh, president. And you have a lingering question about whether or not Kevin McCarthy is going to stick around since his ouster. That would bring the House majority down presumably to one, wouldn't it? Yeah, it very well could. Now, there's going to be a Democrat from New York who's going to leave, uh, Brian Higgins. Uh, I'm told that there might be some others who leave. Uh, there's a little bit of question. I mean, I've not had any indication that it wouldn't happen here. But some donors and, and alumni uh, at Youngstown State University are giving some blowback to Bill Johnson uh, about him taking over the presidency there because they don't they don't like that. Uh, you know, we saw this with Ben Sass, the former senator from Nebraska, uh, who's now the president of the University of Florida, but he's still in that job. So you don't know if maybe, uh, you, you know, again, this is just conjecture here that might fall apart and then Bill Johnson would stay. But as of right now, he plans to leave in March. So you're constantly moving. Uh, you know, we have members die routinely. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, it's you know, there's a lot of things. We had a, a member a couple of years ago, younger member, Jackie Walorski, Democrat from Indiana, died mm -hmm. in a mm -hmm. tragic mm -hmm. car accident car with accident. a couple of aides. Yeah. So you yeah. you just never know what's going to happen. And, and we've never had the House of Representatives flip in the middle of a Congress. 
Do you think that the ouster here of uh, George Santos does set a precedent where these types of uh, votes to expel a member become more frequent? This was only the third time since the Civil War, Chad. Does this become something that we see happen with more frequency now? Well, you know, look at the number of efforts to try to punish uh, fellow members. You know, they just, mm-hmm. uh, you know, had a, a censure for Adam Schiff back in the spring, a censure for Rashida Tlaib, the Democrat from Michigan. Uh, the Democrats, when they were in the majority, they, uh, you know, meted out some discipline to Paul Gosar, Republican from Arizona, Marjorie Taylor Greene. You're seeing this with increasing frequency. Uh, there had been a failed, uh, you know, expulsion effort with Barney Frank back in 1990. Yeah. There have been uh, yeah. two other failed expulsions here. So you're starting to see this more often. Um, some I talked to one member, Bob Good, Republican from Virginia, who said, you know, we, we've had a little bit of a conversation about maybe raising the bar for censure. Now, they could do that because, again, Article one, Section five of the Constitution that's a House rule. You can determine mm-hmm. how to discipline, you know, or, 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 or you know, do things to, to fellow members there based on your own rules. Uh, but the two thirds, that is in the Constitution for expulsion. And of course, you also have some people wondering about the United States Senate, where you have Bob Menendez, right. the Democratic senator from New Jersey, who's been indicted for a second time uh, on, you know, all sorts of allegations and being a, a foreign agent and questions about having gold bars, you know, right. and so well, on. And he's still getting classified briefings. And there have been questions about how come there you, hasn't been a move see? to remove him. How does and, that and, work in the Senate? And again, the, the Senate Ethics Committee, which is often more dormant than the House Ethics Committee, is basically not taking any action. I mean, pretty soon after the um, indictment, uh, this round of indictments for Bob Menendez, there was a, a Democratic caucus meeting and all the Democrats left, and a lot of them tried to leave out a back hallway. In fact, I, I went to the back hallway. Everybody else went to the front <laughs> I know, hallway. I know I that back hallway. hallway. Yeah, I know, I know what yeah. hallway you're talking about. And even they didn't want to talk to me there because yeah. they were so upset at their colleague. They're like, this is just, you know, a car wreck. Because and, and, and they think he should resign. Senator. Yes, exactly. And, they, and, and yeah. he was very defiant and remains so. And yeah. so they wonder about, you know, whether or not that puts that seat in play next year. I talk about a thin majority. Okay. You know, Democrats have that in the Senate, 51-49. So they're very concerned there. It's going to be, a, you know, just the way the map is, it's favored to be a very Republican year. You know, they're only mm-hmm. defending uh, about a third of the seats that are up this time. And, and the seats that are in play, they are in red or at best purple yeah. territory. West Virginia, Montana. Yeah. Ohio. Yeah, you get, yeah. you got it, man. Nevada. Yeah. Uh, so, so this is very challenging there. But again, uh, and so this is where Republicans will say, well, what's good for the goose? Isn't it good for the gander? And I'm sure that that's what they will do immediately is turn up the heat right now on um, uh, Chuck Schumer and yeah. also say and use that as a wedge, you know, it was very, let me just take you down the rabbit hole. So what, wait, so, so, so the, yeah, you're saying that, that the ouster of, of, um, Santos is a way for Senate Republicans to say, see, there is a way out of this. Bingo. Isn't this ironic? Now, yeah. now, now, this is this is the rabbit hole I wanted to go down. Imagine had the vote gone against expelling Santos mm. in the House. Mm-hmm. Democrats would have had a field day with that. I mean, Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader, walked into his press conference yesterday <laughs> and he had a picture with no narration, no caption. It was just a picture of Marjorie Taylor Greene sitting next to George Santos on the House floor and just laughing it up. (laughs) I mean, you know, you're only as good as your material. Right. And so, you know, no comment was even needed. So had this election, excuse me, had this vote on expulsion gone gone south, 
you could see where Democrats would say, you see, they can't elect a speaker. They can't keep a speaker. They can't pass their own spending bills. All they can do is censure Tlaib and Adam Schiff, and they mm. can't even kick out George Santos. But here's the rest of the rabbit hole. Isn't ironic that by the House of Representatives kicking out Santos could give Republicans in the Senate more juice here to say, Senator Schumer, Senate Democrats, look in the mirror. Mm. That will play very well in a lot of these states come come the fall. Let me finish with this. And you may not know the answer to this because there have not been a lot of expulsions. But one thing that former members of the House have are floor privileges. Does that count for somebody who's expelled? Can George Santos see, hang out on the floor? I, you have no idea how many phone calls <laughs> I have made. Now, here, now, here, now, here's why we don't know. Okay. Well, I'm sure nobody's tried it because they've been in jail, Chad. Well, ex no, that's exactly it. In the case of Jim Traffican, he went to jail d literally a few days after he was expelled. He got in his car and left. In the case of Ozzie Myers, uh, the, the, the congressman from Pennsylvania, you had Tip O'Neill, who was the speaker at the House at that time. It was kind of a magnanimous gesture from the from the chair. He says, the matter is closed and kind of waved his hand. And that was it. I mean, it, you know, he was done. But you're right. These people went to jail. So I started asking. I said, don't they still have floor pri privileges? You know, they, because former members can kind of come mm -hmm. and go from the building. Now, I asked those questions. I said, how will you treat him? And again, you know, as an average citizen, he has the right to come and go and everything else. It mm -hmm. has not been intimated to me that they that, that they have passed anything or they have anything in the worst. But I was told that they could if this was a problem, if he was starting to show up here every day and trying to get on the floor. Uh, that That's an issue. But again, because this is unprecedented in the case of Myers, case of trafficant, they went to jail. But I asked, I said, what if he doesn't go quietly? And I was told in a whisper in my ear by somebody very senior here, there is a plan. And I asked, can you tell me more? And they said, there is a plan. That is exactly how the conversation went, Jared. Well, that is a heck of a cliffhanger than to leave it here this week, Chad. That was <laughs> ominous, to say the least. Um, so we'll leave it there because uh, it has been just an extraordinary, I was going to say an extraordinary week on the Hill, but really the last 12 months have been unlike anything I've ever covered, or certainly you've covered. So we'll see what happens, because next week, Chad, they have a lot to do. There is still this supplemental sitting out there. They have to start passing uh, appropriations bills. I imagine all of this uh, makes it much more challenging to do those uh, those basic functions. Absolutely. You know, two deadlines in the winter, one in January, one in February. And guess what? A lot of the conservatives are starting to get very upset at Speaker Johnson. Mm. We'll see how that plays out. Chad Pergram, always appreciate the uh, excellent reporting and insights. My pleasure. Thank you. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Just 116 Americans have ever been sworn in as a Supreme Court justice. It wasn't until number 102 that the justice in the robe was a woman. 
Sandra Day O'Connor died Friday morning. A Supreme Court spokesperson says from dementia, likely Alzheimer, and a respiratory infection. She was 93 years old. A trailblazing law student, legislator, and judge, O'Connor was also at the center of major cases of her day over abortion access, affirmative action, gender equity, and the presidential election dispute of 2000. During her time on the court, the court was really known for 5-4 decisions. And it, during that period, the fifth vote was almost always Sandra Day O'Connor. Jonathan Turley is a constitutional law professor at George Washington University School of Law and a legal analyst for Fox News. I spoke with him about the legal legacy Sandra Day O'Connor leaves behind. She was the ultimate swing vote justice to the point that Many of us covering the court would refer to it as a court of one. Uh, she would ultimately decide a host of questions from abortion to affirmative action uh, because of that swing vote position. Uh, she sort of relished that. I mean, she often would seem to work for more nuanced opinions that would put her at the center of the court. I think there's a lot of aspects to that, however, that reflect something more profound about O'Connor. There were complaints that she was not consistent in her views and did not lay down overriding jurisprudence. Uh, she was extremely practical. Uh, and that, I think, came as much from her upbringing as it did from any desire to be the swing vote. You know, O'Connor was the product of rural America. You know, she was raised on a ranch without running water. They were miles from a paved road. She grew up in that tough Arizona uh, sort of rural scrub. And I think from that, she developed a certain strength, a confidence in who she was, but also a sense of what she believed was necessary for this country. You know, she saw a need for a robust middle in our jurisprudence and in our politics. The interesting thing is that that appealed to Ronald Reagan. I think Ronald Reagan wanted to put a woman on the court, but I think that he was very happy with O'Connor. He knew that O'Connor would not necessarily support the more conservative justices on Roe v. Wade. But I think that it's her personality resonated with, with Reagan. I think they both had a very similar personality in that they had this sense of confidence. Uh, they knew who they were. You know, talking with Sandra Day O'Connor, was, it was very hard not to be enamored with her. She had a certain almost raw elegance about her, you know, that sense of strength and calmness from someone uh, who would achieve so much. I mean, people need to remember that she wasn't just the first female on the court, which is a considerable accomplishment. Um, she was one of the trailblazers in law school where she mm -hmm. did remarkably well. I mean, th this is someone who was a brilliant student uh, she graduated magna cum laude in economics and then at Stanford University, then attended the law school where she was on the law review and became the editor in chief. I had read that when she entered law school, 
2% of law students were women. And when she retired from the Supreme Court in 2006, that percentage was up to 48%. I think now in the more decade and a half, it's over 50%. That's right. And she was a model in a lot of respects for women, but for all of us. I mean, first of all, she showed every one of us, male and female, that it was possible to be a whole person and to be a lawyer. She uh, had a wonderful uh, marriage uh, to her husband that she adored, and she took care of him when he became uh, in need of of, uh, intensive care. Uh, she showed that you could maintain a, the life of a human being, of a mother, a grandmother, a wife, and still be this trailblazing jurist and lawyer. Um, that's actually very important for many of my students uh, because I talk to them all the time about the need to preserve who you are in this profession. And Senator O'Connor is the, one of the common references I make in that sense. Um, But her jurisprudence itself obviously left a great mark. Now, to be honest, I I was critical of of some of her opinions because I did not feel that she had laid a jurisprudential foundation uh, going forward. Uh, And there was a concern of how consistent she was. Uh, And many people felt that she tended to vote to be outcome determinative. But I think that that sells her short. Uh, by a considerable degree. You know, one of the most interesting cases for me, because people will talk about her role in uh, Bush v. Gore and uh, the abortion cases, the Gruder. She would have been the deciding vote in Casey, right? Right. And the Gruder and and, uh, Gratz decisions on affirmative action. Um, The interesting thing is that... um, I actually think more often, if I was to capture Sandra Day O'Connor, it was actually her dissent in Atwater, which was a le- less known case involving the Fourth Amendment and being arrested for a misdemeanor. So this is not some case that people will be talking about uh, for centuries, but it did capture who she was. You know, she dissented because there was a lack in her view of the protection that people needed from arrest for these types of minor offenses. But what came out of that dissent was a deep empathy for people that are stopped by police and what it means to be stopped by police and how the government needs to be limited uh, in these encounters to protect the average people. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it was it was a, a an opinion that really showed that Sandra O'Connor, at the end of the day, was a jurist who tried to solve problems for people, who empathized with people. Now, she was a conservative jurist, but she didn't hesitate to move to the left of the court when those feelings uh, became evident to her, those, those uh, the necessity of intervening. She had, as someone who has known to be something of a libertarian, I liked this aspect of her jurisprudence a great deal because she would continually be uh, stepping forward uh, to p- put herself between citizens and the government, uh, to protect citizens, protect average people. I think that goes back to this little girl who was raised in this on this ranch in Arizona. I mean, she 
had that sort of view of the government. She supported it. She loved the country. But she also knew that people needed a buffer. What was her relationship like with uh, the woman who joined her on the court, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and the women who um, served on the court after she retired? Did, did she stay in touch with, with justices after her? I, I know that one of the reasons she left in 2006 was to care for her husband. Um, I think it surprised a lot of people because she was still relatively young as far as Supreme Court justices go. Um, you know, was she still engaged with, with her former colleagues? She was. One of the causes that she took up was to educate children in school about civics and about their government, about the Constitution. And that kept her very active. And it, it, she interacted a great deal with the current justices. Uh, I spoke with her a number of times after she retired. And that was a consuming part of her life, in addition to taking care of her husband. Uh, and I think that in some ways, it sort of captured who she was, that O'Connor was all about first principles and trying to get people to understand that despite all of the divisions and anger and rage that exists in our politics, we have this common article of faith in the Constitution, the thing that defines us as one people. And that was such a worthy cause for O'Connor to spend uh, the rest of her years on. You know, that was something that I know she... she um spent a lot of time on really up until her, her final days. The other thing that struck me by Senator Day O'Connor, she was confirmed 99 to nothing, right? Yeah. <laughs> We're going to see any confirmation <laughs> like that ever again? Yeah, the only one to vote against her, I think, was Max Baucus from uh, Montana. I, I, the only one the only one that what didn't vote, I should say, yeah. was, was Baucus, not running against her. Um, I, I, that's a really good question. I mean, the... Uh, the, the question is, can we ever achieve that degree of civility uh, and maturity uh, in Congress? I, I, I'd i be a chump to say that I think uh, that we would come to that anytime soon. Uh, but she really is a symbol in so many respects to someone who tried to put herself in the middle uh, on the court of American politics uh, she was, in fact, a politician. She was a Republican yeah. uh, on the state level. She knew politics. She knew what divided people. And she didn't want to be part of that division. I mean, she really, the minute she went on the court, she focused on forging coalitions. And she succeeded. Now, did she leave a jurisprudential legacy like William Brennan or other justices Probably not, to be frank. I mean, she was not someone who attempted to shape the law for centuries to come. She was happy to resolve a dispute in a way that would protect citizens and answer the issue before them. You know, I clerked for a judge like that. And he told me when I interviewed him, he said, you know what, I'm I'm a judge. I'm, I'm here to help people complete their lives, to bring closure to cases. I think she was very much in the same uh, sort of cut of, of that cloth. One of the, the legacies I think that justices have, and maybe it's not as public, are what their clerks go on to do um, in those types of mentorships that they forge. What do we know about those that, that worked for Justice O'Connor? Well, many of them have gone into teaching. Uh, many are judges. I, uh, you know, that she has a considerable legacy in that sense. I mean, the the uh, um, her her uh, clerks have been very very loyal to her, and 
I think that that's going to that's going to live forward. But her greatest legacy is that she was not just the first, but not the fact that she got there first, but what she did when she got there. It was a different model from Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who I had a great deal of respect for. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was not someone who compromised readily. She wanted to make sure she got it right. She tended to be more, much more rigid. Sandra O'Connor viewed it as different. She viewed the court more organically. She viewed these decisions as part of a continuum. Every one of these decisions for her was not etched in stone. Most famously, on affirmative action, she said, you know, that there would come a day when the Supreme Court would no longer tolerate affirmative action. That day came up when the court basically uh, put an end to all affirmative action uh, recently. But that was typical of Sandra Day O'Connor. That is, she didn't feel like she was chiseling on marble. Uh, she really felt that she was resolving disputes in a way that would allow the country to move forward and to do so together. Well, it was an extraordinary life and an extraordinary legacy. I, I appreciate you sharing your thoughts um, of an extraordinary jurist. Um, you know, it's I, I think a fraternity that very few people know what it's like to, to wear that robe and sit up there. And, and it's always fascinating for me to sort of see the reactions and the reflections from the legal community and the other justices when one of their own uh, passes away. It, there really does seem to be an awful lot of of reverence and respect in a way that maybe isn't always viewed publicly when we see all these five, four, six, three decisions. No, it's a great pleasure to talk to you about her because she was a wonderful person and many will mourn her passing. Well, I know uh, you and I are among them. Uh, Professor Turley, always a pleasure. I appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown from Washington, how much are you spending on things you need? That's the key concern for so many voters. I'll speak with one of President Biden's top economic advisors, Jared Bernstein, about inflation, the supply chain and manufacturing in America. And they are not campaign opponents, at least not yet. But that did not stop Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and California Governor Gavin Newsom from squaring off in a Fox News debate. Jessica Rosenthal talks to party strategists about what the event teaches us about red state and blue state governing. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Jared Halpern. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.